everyone. Welcome to Mission Driven Podcast. Today I'm here with three wonderful women to talk about women's health issues. Um, Dr. Lauren Kaplan is a nationally board certified licensed acupuncturist specializing in chronic pain, women's health, and fertility. She received her BA in communications from Rutgers University and her Master of Science and Doctor of Acupuncture from Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. She now owns her own um, practice called Restoration Health Acupuncture and Nutrition located in Randolph, New Jersey. I'm also here with Dr. Helene Dormanin. Uh, she's an orthopedic and pelvic health physical therapist with over a decade of experience facilitating healthy, empowering movement for her clients as a PT. And she is a fitness and Pilates instructor. Inspired by her own motherhood and ardent feminism, she specializes in preparing and healing pregnant and postpartum mothers. Um, lastly, I am also here with Meg Mullaney. She's a registered nurse. She's in school to become a family nurse practitioner and wants to become a SymptoPro professional. So thank you all for being here. I'm very excited for this conversation as I'm sure a lot of my audience is both male and female. Um, so I guess first question to kind of kick us all off, how well do we actually know our bodies? <laughs> well, I'm from my perspective, I think that a lot of times we know our bodies really well, better than we think we do. Um, and, but I think that we don't always have the language to speak about it or um, maybe our experience in our society or in our healthcare system um, kind of downplays what we know in our bodies. Like to me, one thing that I see so commonly that's the best example of this is urinary incontinence. So you see jokes on t-shirts and greeting cards and everything about leaking pee after you've given birth or later in life. And um, that's something that, that, that is treatable and should, you should not have to live with. So that's just like my little example of, of that. Yeah, so I would agree. It's no oh. joke. In other words, right? Knowing our body. Yeah, we want it to be, it's common. So it's not a taboo, yeah. but it's also, we don't want it to be normalized because we don't want people to have to live with it. But I think your, your point is really well taken about um, what becomes normalized. And, and in many ways, particularly in our society, we're taught to believe that a doctor or somebody in medicine knows what we're experiencing better than we do. Mm -hmm. And I, for example, have patients who come in and I'm like, so tell me what's going on. And they're like, well, you know, my blood pressure is this. And the doctor said, I have this. And I'm like, what are you experiencing? What are you feeling? I don't want to hear what you've been told you're experiencing because mm -hmm. the two are very different. And, you know, acupuncture in particular, we always say we're like, last choice, first best results. And I get so many patients who come in and they're like, you know, I'm being told I'm feeling better. I'm not feeling better. Um, and so I think a lot of it is just about also trusting that what you're feeling is real, even when others are trying to tell you it's not. Mm -hmm. I think body literacy is a big thing too. Like for me, I remember going to the OBGYN, which I love him. He's great. But I went to him and I was like, I have really heavy periods. You know, I'm thinking about becoming sexually active. I'm not really sure what to do. And he was just like, well, I'll do a quick pelvic exam. Then I'll give you the birth control pill. And like, that was it. And, you know, nothing was really explained to me. I didn't really read up about like different supplements you can take adjustments in diets, how heavy periods could mean estrogen dominance. And as I like got older and started to research, technically it's natural family planning that I was like told about, but really fertility awareness, which is a natural birth control. Now I feel like I know so much more about my own body 
And a lot of women don't know that. Like I remember telling my friends at work, yeah, like, you know, when you have egg white cervical mucus, that's when you're most fertile. And one of my friends, she was like 35. She's like, I've never checked for that. I don't know. I had the same experience. I, um, I wasn't until we, so we went through in vitro for both of our children, but I was in my mid thirties. And I remember when I was younger, I asked my mom if I could go to the gynecologist because I was having this discharge and I just thought it was like abnormal. And even when I went, he was like, you can blow dry your, your vaginal hair and this way you won't feel moist. Nobody no. ever explained. It was completely normal mm-hmm. because it meant I was ovulating. And, and dry heat not- is terrible for your vaginal tissue. <laughs> That's awful. Yeah. So. Did they just not know back then, do you think? And I'm not saying it was a long time. Yeah, no. <laughs> so far, even in this decade. I, well, I will say perhaps it was taboo because we really, whether the doctors knew that or not, do you think, I mean, I think at the time I was 16 or 17. So the doctor sure wasn't going to suggest something about anything relating to sex with Mm -hmm. my mother. You know what I mean? That was probably really taboo. And I mean, I had a open-minded mom, but she grew up at a time that was I mean, I remember walking into a room with my mom and all her friends and you would say the word period. And it was like, you know, but I was like this open book that opened them all up. They still talk about it now, like how it was me who broke the ice as the daughter versus. That's so funny. My mom is always like teasing me about how many times I say the word vagina. It makes her so uncomfortable. And I'm like, but we all have one. Not all of, not everyone, but everyone in the conversation, like, why wouldn't we say it? And I think that that's often part of like, as you, as we're all saying, I think that's often part of the the struggle is that there's just, there's, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of taboo. There's a multi-million dollar industry built on telling us our vaginas are stinky and they need douches and fragranced wipes and fragranced tampons and fragranced pads and because but that's not like that's how we're supposed to smell that's natural and healthy and it actually indicates a lot of it can be like a really good indicator if you need to make dietary changes or you're looking for family planning vaginal odor is really important to take into account so it's natural and healthy but but that though that industry makes billions of dollars telling us we smell terrible or we're too wet or we're too dry or we're but you bring up an interesting point even about the use of the word vagina you know I have I have a seven-year-old daughter and my husband and I from the very beginning and and this had more to do with you know god forbid there is abuse we -hmm. never used substitute words for private parts with our son or our daughter yeah and I think it starts with language Mm-hmm. And, and then becomes a part of medicine. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was funny. I went away last Thanksgiving and that was like when I was like fresh into like learning about fertility awareness and everything. And I was charting my own cycle and going to an instructor. And my one friend was like, by like the third day and it was like guy friends too, it was all my high school friends. My one friend, Sarah goes, oh, I wonder how much more Meg is going to talk about cervical mucus. I can't do anymore. And I was like, you know what? It's great. Yeah. <laughs> She'll thank you for it someday. Yeah. <laughs> but can I just uh, harp back to you, Dr. Helene? Um, the, on the topic of odor, I am told, and, and it's been validated several times over, that your scent attracts your mate. 
right? Because we're all animals. Mm. So you attract a better mate if you have your natural odor versus a perfumed one. Um, and that, that goes for your underarms and, and everything else as well. Um, but when you have birth control, hormonal birth control, you're changing your elements of how you smell as the individual and then how you smell towards other people. Um, is that true? To the yeah. best of my knowledge, that I am, I have less professional experience with. Um, I will recommend the book that I love that talks about this is The Vagina Bible by Dr. Jen Gunter. She's a phenomenal OB out of Canada. Um, and she, she also is a incredible Instagram content. Um, but I mean, I can say personally that like my body odor changed a lot after I gave birth. And that was like a really interesting experience for me and my husband. <laughs> he was like, he found it very interesting. Um, and, and that that was a, a cool experience. I don't know if um, uh, Dr. Lauren or, or Meg, you well, guys have more, more experience with that professionally. So um, smell is one of the key diagnostics in Chinese medicine. And mm -hmm. I was just having this conversation with a friend earlier today. I think that that is one of, going to be one of the big misses, and you heard it here first, when we go back in time and we talk about telemed, here's what telemed doesn't offer you. Th there is a reason we have all of these senses, sense of smell, sense of taste, the ability to look. And when you're doing telemed, I can't tell right now if, if I'm making Megan nervous and she's tapping her foot. I can't smell fear on her. I can't see if perhaps her palms are sweating or her face is glistening for you know, any reason other than a moisturizer she may have just put on, we are going to miss some really key diagnostic. And Dr. Helene, you, you, know, you nailed it. Like I have patients who come in and I can often tell when something's happening digestively based on their breath. Mm -hmm. And so while my, my odors are not specific to um, reproductive parts, I absolutely can tell when there's an imbalance in the body. And it's interesting too, because I'm somebody who has a refined sense of smell. I know certain people by their smell and many people don't. And I don't know if it's just because I've paid attention to it. Like my mother has a very specific smell. My husband, my children have a very specific smell. And some people pay attention to that and others don't. I have heard though, Monica, the same thing. I, I just don't, from the attracting the mate experience, have the knowledge, but I would say based on what I do know clinically and diagnostically, why would that not be the case? There's actually um, a great book called This Is Your Brain on Birth Control by Sarah Hill. It's amazing. It looks at like basically how birth control Yes, it's great for preventing pregnancy, hormonal birth control. And yes, it's a personal choice. I really believe that. But it does completely alter your body. It essentially puts you in menopause and shuts down ovulation. But it all, um, she references a study that was done. And actually, women who were on birth control were more likely to pick a mate that was genetically similar to them by like pheromone smell. And then also they picked men who were more feminine looking as compared to women who were off of birth control. I'm glad I met my boyfriend when I was off of birth control. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
So fascinating how hormones can change the way we perceive smell and the way we smell towards other people. Um, but it absolutely makes sense because you're changing your biochemistry. Yeah. Well, and hormones are a game, I mean, for men and women, but right. just given our natural cycles through our life. And it was funny, actually, I have, a, I have a teenage boy and we were sitting yesterday and I said to him, you were, you were very teenagery yesterday. And he said, well, you know, I can't control it. It's how I feel. And I looked at him because I'm perimenopausal. And I said, now you know what it's like <laughs> because I'm going through the opposite end of the shift. You know, he's just coming in and I'm on my way out. And, <laughs> you know, it is, it's, it can be challenging. On the topic of challenges, I think now would be a great time to talk about fertility struggles and challenges that you've seen with your clients, um, you know, or, you know, your circle of friends. What have, what have you seen and how do you treat it or how do you address it? Yeah. So I, I don't work with, usually with um, the fertility spectrum, again, professionally, um, but I and I know Dr. Lauren shared some of her personal experience with going through in vitro every time. I had, um, I did have a miscarriage my first pregnancy um, at about seven weeks, which I, is sometimes just called a chemical pregnancy. And it's interesting because I'm, I like you know this. I love talking about women's health, and so I was very open about my experience. I didn't wait until I was in my second trimester to share my pregnancy. So I shared with a lot of people that I had had a miscarriage, and it seemed like most women I knew who had gotten pregnant after they were thirty had had a miscarriage first or a chemical pregnancy first, um, which you'd only know if you were trying because you would have otherwise just thought your period was a little late. Um, and it, it was really eye-opening to see like the, the frequency with which that was happening. Everyone was joking that was kind of a, a dress rehearsal for, the, for well, the real thing. The statistic is one in four couples. Yeah, it felt like so much more. Yeah. It felt like so much more. And when you're going through it, you know, that's like, I'm an open book like you. Um, but then all of a sudden you hear about everybody and, you know, who's had an experience and, you know, I will tell you for me, it was, they were the hardest seven years of my life. Um, having children was the only thing I always knew I wanted. And um, ours, you know, we had a very, I will share for me, I don't share on behalf of my spouse, but it was very difficult time for me. And, you know, I learned a lot through it. I mean, I learned about my cervical mucus. That is part of how I came into acupuncture <laughs> um, because I actually had a fear of needles and I got into an acupuncture study that, um, that allowed me. And the only reason I accepted it was because I did electro acupuncture, which is so there were no needles. Uh, before and after uh, in, uh, embryo transfer. And that was with my son and I got pregnant. And then later, several years later, we ran into a couple that had difficulty getting pregnant. They had an eight month old and she was pregnant again. And she said, this was an oops. We used acupuncture. We never thought we'd get pregnant again. And we got pregnant naturally. And I started hearing these stories over and over. And interestingly for me as an acupuncturist, I didn't offer fertility um, as a treatment early on because I was afraid emotionally it would be too difficult for me 
to work with patients in that way. Um, and I treat, I treat primarily women only because that just happens to be. And now I'm on a different side of it. And, you know, I just love helping women understand. I mean, every single one comes into the office and they're like, you're never going to believe this. Or I know this sounds crazy. And and I, I tell them, like, if you just heard the woman who was in here before you, you wouldn't think that. Mm-hmm. Um, we are so, we're, we're so alike. And so many of us are experiencing challenges and we just need to open the dialogue. So thank you for hosting us and creating that. Have to remove the stigma and have the conversation around vaginas and cervical mucus and acupuncture (laughs) and other ways to maintain a healthy balance because it's really important. This is the only body we have and the only life we have to live. So why not have that conversation? Megan, I'm, I'm interested. So again, you know, I went through seven years of med school and I'm not familiar with, with the particular um, form of natural birth control. I might be when you describe it, I don't know it by name, but I'd be interested to hear more about what you're learning. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think it's kind of funny because a lot of people like go to med school or I went to nursing school and I never got any like real information. Like I think like basal body temperature was mentioned once. But basically, like, so Symptopro, it's actually technically a symptothermal method. So what you do is you check your cervical mucus, you check your basal body temperature, which is your waking temperature before you get up and do anything, and then also your cervical position. You could add in things like progesterone strips to confirm ovulation or LH strips to predict ovulation, but um, basically it's kind of cross-checking all of those things. And then after you've noticed a temperature spike and your cervical mucus dries up after seeing that egg white, um, you can confirm that you've ovulated and you're no longer fertile. I actually, there's, I work in the cardiothoracic ICU at Columbia. So the nurses that I work with are very educated. They're brilliant women, but just talking to them about a lot of them were trying to get pregnant recently and they came to me because they know I'm very interested in it and that I'm in teacher training right now. And I was trying to explain to them about checking cervical mucus, checking your cervix, and they had no idea. And even my- It's interesting because you just described three things. So I'm aware, I never knew it by its name. Mm -hmm. So I knew this method, but I didn't know it had an actual name. I just always- said, do you chart your basal body, your cervical mucus and position? But I didn't know it had an official name. So I learned something today. Yeah. And there's different methods too. Like, so I'm learning the symptothermal because I feel like temperature for me is great to confirm ovulation because you could be having egg white cervical mucus, which is the most fertile cervical mucus and not actually ovulating, which happens to a lot of people, especially with PCOS or if your body's just not, for some reason, it's not cooperating Um, But there's also cervical mucus only methods. There's also a method called Marquette where you test your waking urine and you can see like it'll test for LH and whatnot. And it'll tell you on the little clear blue fertility monitor if you're fertile that day. So there are different methods. And I think it's fascinating that we can actually use evidence-based practice because it is a 99.6% effective rate when you actually use it. You know, and if you go on like the fertility awareness method, uh, Facebook group. Some of the women are like, 
oh, well, you know, we had an oops and now I think I might be pregnant. And I feel like these are the stories you hear about. So a lot of people will look at me and be like, you don't use hormonal birth control. And I'm like, no, because I listen I don't to take my risk. body. Exactly. When you listen to your body and you don't take risks. And that was the biggest thing. My cousin, Stephanie, who's like my angel, because she's the one who told me about this method because her and her husband had gone to pre-cana classes before they got married in the Catholic church. Because I feel like it is known as a Catholic thing, but there are secular options too. And she said to me, she's like, no, you should get off the pill. It's the best thing ever. I love knowing about my body and learning about my body. And I really thought she was crazy. Mm -hmm. Like I thought <laughs> that I was going to go off of my pill and get pregnant right away. You bring up something interesting though, which is big, particularly in my field. You know, we do something we call palace prepping, particularly for women who've come off the pill or who've had miscarriages. I mean, you, there are ways that you can work with an acupuncturist. We work with your diet in, in addition to get your hormones back on track mm -hmm. so that you can experience birth and pregnancy naturally. Mm -hmm. that's, that's actually, that was my experience after my miscarriage. I, I had went to see my acupuncturist and um, they said it would take eight weeks for me to get my period back. Um, I, I did have an emergency DNC and, um, and then I couldn't start trying to get pregnant again until I got my period back. And of course, at that point I was, I just wanted to get pregnant. <laughs> I sure. mean, you know, when you're trying yes. um, and and um, I, I went to see my acupuncturist and now with two or three sessions, I got my period back in five weeks um, and, and conceived the first month thereafter. And now I have oh. my son just celebrated his first birthday on Monday. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Part of the reason, like I, I always say to women, and it, and it certainly depends on what their age is, where they're at, like it's, you know, we have a lot of things you have to take into account, but I, you know, that's the other thing you have to be aware of is, you know, your hormones are on a cycle and when they lose their way, it can take time. Now, for some people, it's quicker. The younger you are, potentially, the, the more quickly it can happen. It's not uncommon for it all to happen in the first three months, but there are others that it could take a year. And, you know, I want to, Monica said for our male listeners out there, and so you know, another thing that I want to really make sure that we address here is that fertility requires a partner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that was very frustrating for me when I was going through it was being told, relax, it'll happen, you know, this, that. And so I got very frustrated because I felt like I was getting blamed mm -hmm. and, you know, it doesn't matter if it's male factor or female factor, but it's, it's this assumption that it's the woman's problem or that she can't relax, A, but B, what I do commend my reproductive endocrinologist for is saying, we will not treat you until your husband is tested first. And I say the same thing to women. Mm -hmm. I am more than happy, but you are wasting your money with me if you are not having your partner tested, because mm -hmm. a lot of times it's not the woman. Right. You need a partner throughout the process in right. every way. Right. And you can still be palace prepping. You should be. I can help you get pregnant more quickly, have a healthier pregnancy, 
have a healthier postpartum. So -hmm. there's no harm in doing all of that. But the recognition is that there's a reason you need a sperm and an egg. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's for all you men out there, it's not just us. And when you, when you say you want a son or a daughter, keep in mind, it has to do with your sperm (laughs) that makes that decision. So, you know, that's, but you'd be surprised. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to have someone to communicate with as well, because I remember my boyfriend, we've been together two years. So he's been with me this entire journey. And at first I was like, I think I want to go off the birth control pill. How do you feel about that? Because even though it was my decision, I felt that I wanted to know his opinion. And he said to me, he's like, you know what? You have to do what's right for you. I support you no matter what. So I said to him, okay, I found an instructor. Do you want to take the classes with me? And he was like, yeah, sure. So we took the classes together. And then now it's at the point, like a year plus later, where he'll be like, oh, how's your cervical mucus today? Are you fertile? And I'll be like, oh, no, I'm not. And he's like, well, that's great. Now I know. So, you know, and now he knows, because at first he was terrified. He was like, oh my gosh, if we have unprotected sex ever, you're going to get pregnant. And I was like, no, that's not how it works. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm sorry. I went through six rounds of IVF and seven rounds of IUI, a lot of fertility. Yeah. My husband still couldn't tell you. He, he still, like, <laughs> you know, he was just motoring through it. Yeah. He still couldn't tell you. Yeah. Different levels of partnership are appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> are work in different relationships. That's true. <laughs> true. Yeah. Um, so my next question, and I think this is valid because all of you have gone through something related to fertility yourself or planning to not be fertile when, and, <laughs> um, has it brought you closer to your partners? Hmm. Is that a loaded question? <laughs> Did I skip this in the record? Um, I think, I think so. I mean, we, it was, it was a tough thing. The, the miscarriage for us anyway was was kind of tough because we had such different experiences with it um and it was interesting how political it became too because then it was kind of a like was it because we are both like and, and not to open a can of worms but we are both pro-choice so then it was a, like a, you know we we were confronting our own views of like we didn't lose a yes. person based on our our views and, and our beliefs um but more like a lost potential a lost opportunity um and also really interestingly i read uh, about um fetal microchimerism where a few cells of every pregnancy you've ever had remain in your body um and that kind of had like a bittersweetness to it to me also um so we experienced it really differently because i had the physical symptoms obviously um and and my husband was just kind of like we'll try again. And I was like, well, in order to do that, my body needs to like have a whole revolution. <laughs> like, yeah. um, But I think in the end it did bring us closer and it certainly made me all the more appreciative and grateful because I just assumed that I would be like my mom and just have no problems getting pregnant and popping out a kid and, you know, keep going. Um, so it certainly made, made me a lot more grateful. And, and I think my husband was just grateful the whole time to have, you know, a healthy, a healthy son. Awesome. I, I can tell you, um, it nearly broke us. 
um, particularly towards the end, because, you know, we had had, my husband was married prior to me. So he has a daughter from his previous relationship. Our son was born out of our first round of IVF. So we had great luck and um, his family was complete in his mind. And not that he didn't feel, and I had two miscarriages in between my children. So it's not that he didn't experience a lot of that. I think he got to the point where seven years in and saw, I mean, I fell into depression. It was really, really a difficult time for me. I just couldn't wrap my hands around why other people got the family they wanted and I was being denied that. Um, and, and, oh, by the way, with nothing physically, why that shouldn't be happening. So it was really, really difficult for me. And I didn't feel supported in that way. Uh, I think it's interesting what Dr. Helene brought up because I do think we both did examine our... Um, I'm definitely pro-choice. I think my husband was, I think he's less so now. I will tell you though, and I'm still pro-choice, but it did make me think more deeply about it, particularly because we had what we called kidsicles. So we had kids in the freezer. We ended up using all of our embryos, but the question of what to do with those that may have been left was really an area that we didn't agree on. Um, so I'm grateful that we didn't end up, we did agree in the beginning, but through the journey, yeah. we ended up not agreeing. And so I'm grateful that in the end, it didn't end up being a thing because my daughter was born of our last set of embryos, but that was a really tough one for me. I think we've come much more full circle now. I mean, my daughter just turned seven but it was not easy. And you brought up something interesting and part of it, I was in therapy at the time is, we're women, we have the physical experience of it. A man does not experience fatherhood until the birth of the child. Mm -hmm. They experience it to a degree, but the reality is it's very hard for them to understand what we're experiencing because we are having all of those hormonal changes right. taking place. The change yeah. is real from the moment of conception for us and it is not for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are advantages and disadvantages to that too though, because then sure. also, I mean, like at least in my case, I feel like my husband went from zero to 60 on fatherhood from like, you know, from being like, not, not at all. Like just kind of supporting his like cranky bloated wife to like, <laughs> like to, oh my God, I'm a dad. Whereas sure. I had like that whole nine months of being like, there's a little, there's going to be a little person. I have to eat well. I have to take care like, you know, um, and that, that was like a slow ramp up for me. Megan, it sounds like you have a, a wonderfully progressive relationship. Yes. I, I'm interested. I'm really looking forward to the day where we can start trying. I mean, if he said tomorrow, I'd be like, yeah, let's do it. Um, but <laughs> But I'm lucky that he's very involved and also aware of my body and he was willing to learn about everything. And, you know, he's like fascinated with it as much as I am. And he was even really excited when I got accepted into teacher training too. Sorry, the dog. Um, <laughs> but when I got accepted, he was like, oh, this is great. You'll be able to teach other women because I've just fallen in love with it so much. So that's awesome. And it's great to have an encouraging partner as well. Oh, yeah.
for sure. Yeah, with ebbs and flows, I'm sure, with everyone. Oh, yeah. Um, so another, another topic. Or that was a great question, by the way, though. Thanks. Everything I've read <laughs> about um, family planning and, you know, even acupuncture and using uh, PT to help, it, it does help you bring you closer to your partner. And I've always been of the mindset that if you can't talk about sex with your partner, then you shouldn't have sex with them. Um, yes. You know, yes. it's as simple yes. as that. And, you know, it's, it's an open and honest kind of situation. You're very vulnerable when you're in that situation. Sure. So why not have that awkward conversation? If it's too awkward, it's the wrong person. Um, so if, you th if you think you're vulnerable having sex, try like having a head come out of your vagina, <laughs> you yes. know, I mean, yep. Exactly. Um, so switching back into the medical sphere of things as opposed to personal, um, what can we do to get this conversation more inclusive within current medical professional practitioners offices and, and make this common? <laughs> I think it has to start with school, honestly. There's actually a great um, organization that focuses on medical students and teaching them fertility awareness methods. I believe it's called FACTS, like F-A-C-T-S. Um, as for nursing school, I feel like it would be great if we had something similar to come in. I personally have decided to go into functional medicine because I just, even though I love conventional medicine, I love being an ICU nurse, but I do feel like there's a lot of natural alternatives, herbs, acupuncture, you know, physical therapy. There's all different options that sometimes I feel like our society has become just obsessed with, you know, giving a pill. There you go. Take your pill, get out of my office. And it's five minutes, 10 minutes. I went to an amazing functional nurse practitioner in New York city. I am obsessed with her. And the first day I went in, I was telling her, I'm like, you know, I have no sex drive. I feel miserable. My periods are heavy. My PMS is awful. And she just sat down for an hour and she listened to me and I was crying and she gave me a big hug at the end. And she was like, we're going to fix this. And honestly, like I'm only at the tip of the iceberg with her and I feel so much better. Yeah. That's good yeah. to have that person yeah. that you can rely on and trust. Yeah. I think school's part of it, but I think, I, th I think it's not even med school. I think it's like grade school. And I think it's women to women women to men, women and men to children, mm -hmm. and making sure that these conversations aren't awkward and icky from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I, like, I liked your point earlier too about not using any euphemisms for genitals. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I think that there's like a larger social aspect, like I said, like taking away the stigma from talking about miscarriages and urinary incontinence and so many other things that are experienced disproportionately by women well I mean incontinence is disproportionately by women um, miscarriages are only women of course but um, um but I mean and for me personally too I, I do it on a professional level um like outreach one at a time every time I see a client I say hey can I follow up with your OB with your urogynecologist with your gynecologist and tell them what we're working on and tell them how um, you know, not, and, and then I use that opportunity, not just to, you know, do good interprofessional um, care of the patient, but also as a gentle, you know, maybe education or awareness builder for that medical practitioner. Um, and, and I, 
I talk about it so much that even like I have a good friend now who's in medical school and she gave a presentation to her um, to her fellow uh, residents about pelvic floor physical therapy and what it could help um, because she said they didn't even mention pelvic floor physical therapy in her um, OB and GYN classes. Um, so I think it's just a matter also of like continuing to be open about our personal experiences, but also about what we can do professionally. I mean, I've been at weddings at like, like 11 30 at night, a few drinks in and telling people about what I can do for their vaginas. <laughs> and people are interested because it's, we, we all yeah. really want to know. And, and we're kind of scared to talk about it or ask because it feels awkward or uncomfortable. So I totally agree with Dr. Lauren's point of, of, you know, trying to, to really just be yep. more realistic and more open. Um, because they're, well, they're bodies. We all have them. And mm. I was thinking about like Megan, what you just described that experience. So, so it's also about listening. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Megan describing her experience with a functional medicine practitioner. And I, I've had a lot of patients who come in and they're like, they just haven't been heard. Yep. So mm -hmm. you're, we're not even addressing issues because we're not listening for them. We're right. assuming we already know. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it's, it's so many different areas. And I agree with Dr. Helene in terms of, you know, always trying to educate other physicians, particularly for acupuncture on what we do. It's becoming a little more challenging. Like we used to do a lot of lunch and learns pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. It's obviously a little, you know, you can't just walk into a physician's office and be like, hey, we'd love right. to do a lunch and learn, want to set it up. But I have my receptionist now calling, you know, to see if we can, because there are safe ways to have the dialogue and maybe it mm -hmm. needs to be a Zoom dialogue. And, you know, um, I presented to a women's group a couple of weeks ago and, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed at how many really intelligent women either don't know A or B, we all think we're the only ones. We're all mm -hmm. like, oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, like it's, and I'm I think not special. It, well, right. you are, you are, <laughs> but, but, but some ways you don't need to be special. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm glad that Megan found a practitioner that she connects with that can help her because that's the name of the game is, the, you know, the trust factor. And, you know, it's not all physical. Right. You know? yeah. the physical, mental, and emotional aspects. And sure. You know, to circle back to where it starts, where the conversation starts, is it at home? Is it in grammar school or is it in med school? Um, I would argue that it's at home to begin with because I come from a very European family where kids are naked running around till they're 10 years old and that's fine. You take a shower with your parents, both naked, that's fine. You talk about a penis, you talk about a vagina because those are body parts, just like your ear, your nose and your mouth. Yeah. And you, you take the stigma out. So when something hurts or when something's wrong or when something isn't quite right, they have the, the vocabulary, the language to talk about it. Yeah. And they have the environment with which to talk about it in. So mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, starting that at home, as embarrassing as it might be, it might be for your parents, but you get to decide how you raise your kids. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. so important. I've yeah. also taken to posting a lot of stuff about or posts just 
pictures, diagrams, information about natural birth control, cervical mucus, um, different supplements you can take for heavy periods, PMS, et cetera. And I actually had two girls that I lived with on the same floor in college. They reached out to me and one of them was like, Hey, I'm trying to get pregnant. Can I ask you some questions? And I was like, I am not a certified instructor, but I will be happy to give you all the information I was given. And I actually found an instructor that was offering free classes for her. And then the other one just texted me the other day and she goes, Hey, I'm getting off the pill. Can you give me some good resources? And I was like, this is great. Just to know that like people out there are learning just because I'm posting something, which is, I think the great thing about social media nowadays too. Absolutely. I, I have to say a, a plug for all of you. I know, you know what you're doing and I, I'm watching what you're doing. So other people have to be doing the same as well. Um, Helene, did, did you want to add something to this? Um, these are all like really, really great points. And I think that the, the awesome thing is that, you know, social media is great for those of us who were raised, like for me, I was raised in a very Catholic household. We did not talk about vaginas or penises, heaven forbid. And we, we were like very, very, um, proper and and then I went to an all-women's college and we talked about vaginas all the time so (laughs) I think like the really nice thing is that you can find it later in life too if you weren't lucky enough to have that experience of of growing up with with being very comfortable with talking about sex and your body and um yeah so it it is great the social media aspect of course there's also a lot of opportunity for disinformation out there so yeah. always check who you're following di- check what their credentials yeah. are yeah. the dialogue though i mean and mm-hmm. i can say this because i did not grow up in the era of social media the dialogue that is happening and that is that is no longer for mode yes is amazing you know yeah. you weren't going to see a me too movement when i was growing up yeah I, any side of a Me Too movement. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, I think that alone is really empowering. Um, and I think it's just overall really interesting. I mean, to your point, Monica, about our children, like I, I look at my daughter and I really struggle because again, I grew up with like a 50s mom and similar to Dr. Helene, it was like, you know, you, 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 you dress very conservatively and Mm -hmm. my daughter is so body proud and I am like envious and it's like how do I not crush this but also make her cognizant of like what could be over the top Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean because she doesn't care and and it's great but she unfortunately is living in a society that might take advantage of that and so it's that those are hard I don't have those answers. I just think to your point, we need to have forums like this where we can keep talking. And um, so I have two more questions because I'm trying to be cognizant of everyone's time here as well. This one is for Helene because you help people uh, or women with their pelvic floor issues, hip issues. How, how and why is that important for women to consider having a resource after birth? Mm, that's such a great question. Um, and And the nice thing is, you know, there are, pelvic floor specialists who do any point in the life, uh, in the life cycle. Um, I happen to specialize in pregnancy and postpartum. Um, and 
some of the work I do is in preparing. So in case people haven't heard of the pelvic floor, because not everyone's talked about it, it's, it's a diamond shaped group of muscles that sits in the bowl of the pelvis. Um, and it does, has a lot of functions, um, but it helps support our pelvic organs. So uterus, bladder, and rectum. Um, and it, it um, of course, it helps us maintain our continence, prevent from leaking urine and feces. It also, when you're pregnant, it's supporting the weight of the fetus. Um, it also has a role in sex, um, where actually an orgasm is a rhythmic contraction of your pelvic floor. So if your muscles are working a little better, you can actually orgasm better and faster. Um, so that's an interesting tip. Sign for me you. up. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to start going to you now. Uh, I'm here. Um, Monica. So, how far postpartum? Like 13 years? You are always, once you have given birth, you are always postpartum. It's a permanent change in your yeah. anatomy and physiology. Um, and so, but especially postpartum, I mean, like this happened to me, I love my OB, but you know, she's part of this conventional medical system. And, um, at six weeks you're, oh, look, your sutures are healed up. Good to go back to normal. And then you're like, Hey, wait a minute, but I'm still really scared to have sex because it's going to hurt. And I still feel tender. And, you know, a lot of you might still have trouble passing a bowel movement, um, or returning to what you want to do. Like if you want to return to running, it's really hard to go from giving birth to running where you're putting three times your body weight through one leg at, you know, ideally you're running at a cadence of 180 steps a minute. So that's 90 single leg squats a minute, every minute that you're running. And to go from giving birth to doing that is like a huge leap. So I think it's really important. And it is the standard of care in many European countries to see a pelvic floor physical therapist after giving birth. So it, it's a vital resource that's not offered enough to women to help return to, uh, well, not, and I don't, I don't you like using return. I, I default to that because that's what we hear so often, but to help acclimate to your new body and, and see what your new body is capable of and, and move forward. Um, I, don't, I don't like going back to your pre-baby body. Like, I don't know what that is. So, um, like, um, and, and to, to get you feeling the best that you can and without these lingering questions and, and without like 15 years down the line, oh, hey, yeah, I've been leaking urine this whole time every time I sneeze. That's embarrassing and it's uncomfortable. Um, it shouldn't be embarrassing, but it is. Uh, and, and, and it can be it can be treated. And I've actually been doing it. Um, you know, I know, Dr. Lauren, you were talking about telemedicine. Um, but I think in this population, oftentimes the choice is nothing at all, or sure. something that's convenient, like telemedicine. Um, and, and I think that that really provides a unique opportunity, because there are things that can be done. Um, research has shown that in physical therapy, the most effective interventions are education and exercise. And those two can be done very effectively via telemedicine, even if it is a phone call, because that's what you can figure out doing when your little one's taking a nap or finally down for the night and you, you don't have childcare or whatever it is. Um, so that was kind of a, a really long, I could, I could keep talking about this for hours, but <laughs> those are some of the key things. I know, again, being cognizant of the time, the last question I always ask of my guests is what is your mission? In a minute or less, um, I'll start anti-clockwise on what I'm seeing on my screen with Meg. Um, what's your mission? My mission is to become a more well-rounded practitioner, hopefully become someone who can listen to patients, teach them about functional medicine and also fertility. 
and be able to teach natural birth control and body literacy, which I think is so important nowadays. Dr. Helene, what's your mission? Um, so my mission is to empower women to feel joyful in their bodies with education and exercise um, and body positivity. Awesome. Dr. Lauren, what's your mission? To help my patients achieve their best health, whatever that is for them, whether that's with me or through another practitioner. That's awesome. And now you all have each other to hopefully rely I'm on. Excited and about talk yeah. to you. Um, for everyone listening out there, male or female, I have all the information in the show notes below for links you can share with your wives or girlfriends. Um, everybody can benefit with a little bit of knowledge about your body. So thank you all for being my guest today. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Reminder that all the thoughts, opinions, and expressions are exclusive to the person and not representative of any company, brand, or organization.